This is Nicole Deffenbaugh. If you are enjoying the podcast, we invite you to tell your friends and family and like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. patients in my office one day and I met a young woman in her 20s who came in complaining of breast pain and I asked every question I could think of that might cause breast pain we talked about cyclical changes and new medicines and ended up ordering an ultrasound and it came back and it was completely normal and yet I could sense that this patient was really really distressed about the breast pain and I could tell that she was frustrated and, and I was frustrated at, at not really being able to find an answer um, to help her explain why she was having these symptoms and come up with a treatment plan that might work for her. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside healthcare. In this podcast, we invite you, the listener, to hear the real stories from clinicians, other healthcare providers, and patients as they navigate through our complex U.S. healthcare system. And they offer tips and advice, ways that we might communicate with others that we meet on our own journey. I'm Nicole Deffenbaugh, and I am grateful to be here with Dr. Beth, who is sharing her experiences caring for individuals who identify as members of LGBTQIA community. Welcome, Dr. Beth. Thank you. Excellent. So you had a patient who came in for... Uh, breast pain, you did a number of tests and you couldn't quite figure out what was going on. So what happened next? So I, to be honest, I didn't even know if she was going to come back to see me um, because I, I could tell again that she was frustrated that I wasn't able to give her an answer that would explain her symptom. And But she did come back and we talked about some other things. I think it was about two visits later. Um, she said, you know, remember that breast pain? And I said, yeah, you know, are you still having that? Um, how are things going? And the patient then said, well, I have something to tell you. So I am actually transgender and I've been binding my breasts by wearing multiple layers of sports bras that are a few sizes too small. And it was this light bulb going off. Um, of course you would be having pain if you were doing that. But, you know, to ask someone about binding the, their breasts as a, as a cause of nostalgia or breast pain is definitely not part of my typical differential diagnosis for figuring out that complaint. Um, so it was really this pivotal moment, I think, for both of us of, of recognizing that there was this key piece of information um, that you know, could have solved this puzzle much sooner and really allowed me an opportunity to reflect on the questions that I was asking um, and also my capacity to really create an environment for that patient to disclose that information. Um, so how long had you been seeing this patient? And, and like, was this the first time uh, that they came to you and said they were having breast pain and then the second visit? Are we talking months or are we talking years? It was over a span of about three to six months. Oh, okay. So it was a while that you had seen this individual. They came back. You did more tests. Mm -hmm. They came back. Um, that uh, you you couldn't quite put your finger on what was going on. 
Right, there was something there, but it just, uh, again, it just was this amorphous thing that I, I couldn't solve. And then uh, over time, as we developed a relationship, then he felt comfortable disclosing that information. Um, and I think it was also part of his journey as well, because it was right around that same time frame uh, where he had opted to disclose that to his family, to his friends. So it was um, all within kind of that, that same window. Yeah, I can't help but stop and think about use of pronouns because you started the story by saying she mm -hmm. and then switched to he. Did, was that the patient's choice? Did she start with my name is, give a feminine or female uh, name, and then over time switched? Or how? Tell me a little bit about that. That's a great question. So we started off with a feminine name. And I made the assumption to use she, um, which is something that I've learned along this journey, having been doing this work now for about five years. Um, one of the questions that I often start off with asking patients is, if that information is not already documented, is what is your preferred name um, and what are your pronouns? And I'll also introduce myself to patients as, as I'll say my name and my preferred pronouns are she, her. Uh, so to kind of set that as an expectation and to create a space for them to share that information as well. Excellent. So what, in that first conversation with the patient, um, let's just say that his or her name was Nicole, right? Mm -hmm. um, so did she say, please call me Nicole? The, and do you mean the first conversation when we first met? Yeah. No. Uh, okay. Mm -hmm. So what, so... They said, please call me he. What did? What was their preferred pronoun the first time you met? Uh, so I, I didn't ask the question at that time. Oh, I see yeah. what you're saying. So, okay. so you've learned over time to ask these questions. Exactly. I so okay. um, once he shared that he was transgender, um, this was his new preferred name, preferred pronouns, um, then that's when the shift occurred. Okay. Um, and again, this was... A, you know, one of the, the earlier transgender patients who I saw in my career, and, and now I'm, I'm much more careful about asking all patients that question. You know, we also have a lot of patients who are gender non-binary, um, who prefer they, them, their pronouns. So I think that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned along the way is, you know, to not make assumptions and to make sure that those questions are being asked in an open, non-judgmental way um, in order to create an environment where patients feel comfortable disclosing that information. And for our listeners, I just wanted to offer a definition, uh, LGBTQIA, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, T is transgendered or transsexual, Q is queer, uh, sometimes questioning. I is intersex, and A can be asexual or ally. There, there are different words that are trying to capture um, really all the individual identities in the community, but really it comes back to personal preference, um, is what I'm hearing you say. Just to give our listeners a sense, um, because I've heard people say, well, it's not that many people. In the years that you've practiced, um, could you say a percentage of individuals who have um, disclosed to you their uh, sexual orientation as a patient? 
Um, percentage is difficult. <laughs> I don't know that I can give that information off the bat. I will say um, specifically for transgender patients, the most recent estimate in the United States is about 1.4 million adults. Um, note that that's adults and does not include children and adolescents. And I think the reason that that number is particularly poignant for me is that the, it's the same size of the population in this country living with type 1 diabetes. And we wow. talk a lot about type 1 diabetes. We learn a lot about type 1 diabetes as clinicians, um, and yet relatively little um, about our LGBT patients. And again, the 1.4 million was specific to transgender, um, certainly not encompassing the, the full spectrum as you had described it. So it's a much larger population that I think many are aware of, um, and particularly for our older patients who uh, may fear facing more stigma and coming out. Um, certainly have been seeing some older patients, but I feel like most of those who come to me are in their uh, late teens, early 20s. Yeah. I was wondering about that. That was one of the questions I was gonna ask you is, who does feel comfortable to come out to you? Because mm -hmm. I can only imagine that every time you say to somebody and, and explain your sexual orientation and tell your story, that must be really difficult and I would think challenging and um, imagining that that might be really difficult because you're creating a sense of trust with your physician. Do you get the sense that there are people who haven't told you um, about their, their orientation and, and is that something that you feel happens? Absolutely. So I'm quite sure if you just look at the, the population averages that many more of my patients than I'm aware of have um, a gender identity that's not concordant with their sex of birth um, and they haven't shared that. Um, also, uh, many patients um, who are in same-sex relationships or are bisexual um, who haven't disclosed that. So again, I think it's really thinking about how we create an environment um, that allows patients to share that information, and that can include having um, signage in the waiting area, brochures, and a lot of it too is the you know the intake forms that we have, and I think even more importantly, the way that we ask we ask the questions that we ask. You know, so what is your sex at birth? What is your current gender identity? Acknowledging that there's a lot of dynamism within that. Um, patients may change that within days, within months, within years. Um, and then asking about sexual orientation, um, you know, questions like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? And just having a very standard line of questioning um, so that patients don't feel singled out. Um, you know, I have a lot of patients who will react to that, like, why are you asking me that? Obviously, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just say, you know, this is, these are the questions I ask every single one of my patients, and then they sort of nod and, and we move on. So I, I think that's part of it as well. Yeah. I want to ask you more a little bit later and sort of get into the questions we can ask, how to create an LGBTQ-friendly environment. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back a little bit into the story, because uh, you had said this is not something that you did initially, that this mm -hmm. has taken time for you to, to develop. Um, to know what to say and what questions to ask. I'm thinking about people who are um, listening. Can you tell us a little bit about what it felt like for you, um, if you can think back to the first patient who mm -hmm. disclosed to you? How did you? How did you feel and how did you work through that with yourself and with them? It was really a mix of emotions. I felt really honored that that patient was willing to share such sensitive information, particularly at a time in his life when he was just beginning to share that with other people. 
Um, though I, I think in some ways it may be easier to share that information with a, a healthcare provider than perhaps some other folks in your life. Um, on the other hand, it still is a very big deal to come out to anyone, particularly for people who may have experienced bullying or harassment or shame, or may even just have anticipation of experiencing those things, um, or have seen other um, individuals within the healthcare system who have not been a, as friendly and welcoming. So it was definitely feeling very honored. Um, also felt a little bit disappointed in myself that it, you know, that hadn't occurred to me to ask better questions from the outset. Um, and that I had made some assumptions and, and again, gave me an opportunity to reflect on the way that I um, talk to all patients, particularly when I'm meeting them for the first time. And of course, now within my practice, that I, I do have a, a larger number of um, patients of, of trans men and trans women. A lot of them are coming to me specifically for that reason. I wonder, yeah. uh, so it's a much different encounter when I say, you know, what brings you in today as a new patient? They say, you know, I. I heard about you from my friend or I read or something like that and I'm here specifically because you know I'd like to start hormone therapy or something like that um, so it, I think they're coming in already for that very specific purpose so I would think that probably feels different on both sides um, than having a patient perhaps who you've cared for for a decade or more who who discloses this information yeah, when you had talked about uh, talking to a physician versus telling family members or friends, I also know and and have heard uh, friends of myself and, and former colleagues, there's also a lot of judgment and stereotypes in medicine too, and a lot of fear um, that when you do disclose to a physician or any clinician that there can be um, a lot of judgment, mistreatment, um, you know, so finding a clinician who is open and who is willing to hear and treat that individual um, is is actually still a rarity for many people. They they there isn't an assumption that the person they're talking to is going to be open um, to their lifestyle, um, to their medical needs, to their social mm -hmm. needs, um, and it sounds like. Um, you are an individual who people have found, uh, would you say, through word of mouth, too? I, definitely word of mouth. I've had, you know, I've a few groups of friends <laughs> who I take care of, which is a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, I, I think to your point, there definitely are clinicians who are less comfortable. Um, I, you know, in general, most most of us receive little or no training. I was fortunate to um, have some training in an LGBT center, um, but most get you know maybe a couple of hours during all of their training on LGBT health, and yet there are very specific disparities um, that we need to be aware of. Um, learning how to ask questions in order to determine. Um, what kind of screening tests the patient may need so that they're really getting the best possible personalized patient-centered care. And I think most people really want to do the right thing and they want to ask the right questions, um, but we're all less comfortable with things that we don't know. And if this isn't something you've been exposed to, you may not you may try to avoid it, you may not enjoy it as much as other things in which you feel more competent and more comfortable. Yeah. Have any of your patients shared their past stories of trying to navigate through the system and some of their um, challenges and frustrations, but perhaps some of their uh, hopeful moments? Um, they have. I've certainly heard some stories of, of patients 
essentially feeling rejected um, or having experiences where they felt that their uh, physician was really uncomfortable. Um, I still do worry a lot about my patients navigating the system. I had um, a, a trans woman in my office recently for a visit who needed a testicular ultrasound and I was very nervous about her scheduling that and getting to a place and them looking at her and looking at her chart and having questions about why she would need imaging of, of anatomy that they might not expect that she would have. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are still cha some challenges in navigating. I think in general though, um, most systems are moving to and taking very active steps and moving to having an electronic medical record where that information is very clearly documented in, in a way that's not overly overt um, so as not to make a patient uncomfortable but allows us to communicate amongst ourselves and amongst, amongst different departments uh, about what that patient's needs may be. Excellent. So let's dive in a little bit more um, to the questions and comments and um, things that you've learned that might be helpful for clinicians. You had mentioned uh, questions to ask. Um, what are some other insights that you can offer those who are, um, and this isn't just physicians, right? So it starts all the way in the beginning when someone makes a phone call, but this is applicable to nurses. And so anybody in a clinical setting, imaging. Um, so I'm thinking of people who do, um, uh, help me with all the terminology. X-scans or ultrasounds, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, so what are some tips and advice you would offer? So I think the biggest thing is, is to maintain a sense of humility. I think a lot of times we're fearful of, of getting it wrong or saying it wrong. And at the end of the day, even if we're trying our very best, we will. And I know that I do and I have. Um, and I apologize to the patient or I ask questions when I'm not sure. And what I've heard time and time again is we'd much rather you ask um, and thanks for apologizing you know, for getting it wrong, maybe using an incorrect pronoun. We just really appreciate that you're trying. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is just to have a sense of, of humbleness about this, acknowledging that maybe this isn't an area where we've had a lot of training, um, but that we're trying our best. And I, I think that does go a long way with patients. So if a clinician is um, thinking, okay, something something isn't quite what I'm familiar with. The name is saying one thing, the person's walking in, they're using a different pronoun, and all these red flags are going off, the red flag moment, like my gut's telling me. Instead of keeping it to yourself because you're embarrassed or you don't know what to say, it's what what might somebody do in that moment? So in that moment, you might say, you know, what is your preferred name? What's your current gender identity? What pronouns do you use? Um, I know one of my colleagues recently was in that situation and was very uncomfortable and didn't know what to do and then finally asked the patient and learned that actually it had been an error in entering the information. So wow. <laughs> the patient was not, in fact, um, transgender, but, it, but instead it actually was an error. But again, if you're not sure, always better to ask the questions and I think asking them in a very thoughtful systematic way um, and kind of getting practice in that so they just sort of do roll off just as you would ask what is your past surgical history or you know tell me about your family history um, I think is, is really important um, I think you know, one of the other questions that I'll often ask patients is particularly for a new patient at the end of an intake is, is there anything else you'd like me to know about your health history? Mm. Um, and there have been some 
at times surprising things that have come up in that. It could be a religious preference that that um, didn't come up in social history or other other things, including gender identity, if it wasn't disclosed earlier, um, that really allow me to take the best possible care of the patient. One of the things you had said earlier too is it becomes part of your the, your standard set of questions. Um, so I heard you say, I ask this of every patient. Mm-hmm. So is that something else that you would advocate that it becomes sort of the norm that you, you ask? I'm just curious, what's your preferred name, your preferred pronoun, mm-hmm. um, ge- preferred gender identity? Would you mind sharing? And so you say, this is something that I ask all patients. Right. And that has helped you too? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And sexual orientation. I still remember seeing a, an adolescent uh, when I was a resident as an, an adolescent male and I said I think I said something like are you dating do you have a girlfriend and my preceptor wasted no time in telling me that that was a terrible question to ask um, because if that patient in fact was gay or bisexual I had really completely shut down the opportunity for that patient to disclose that information mm-hmm. so again I think it's leaving things open um, so that that those sorts of things can be disclosed. Um, Another thing is, is, you know, thinking about where some of the disparities are and acknowledging that this is a population of patients who may have experienced prior trauma, um, either, you know, some within the healthcare system itself, unfortunately, um, and others in in the rest of their daily lives from stigma, bullying, etc., which really makes the risk of mental health um, challenges and also um, smoking and substance use disorders much more prevalent. Um, so making sure, again, just as we would with any pe- patient, um, but particularly so for this population, asking those questions. And I think sometimes a helpful way to frame that can be, you know, we do know that you know rates of smoking are higher. Is this something that you've ever struggled with, or or something like that? Um, making sure to pay attention to that, and then. You know, thinking about, certainly if I see a patient as a new patient, I'm going to ask all the questions. I'm going to ask about, essentially do what we call an organ inventory. Hmm. Um, so if the patient you know, has had gender affirming surgery, it's really important for me to know um, that that patient no longer has a cervix and therefore doesn't need cervical cancer screening. If you're seeing a patient um, who perhaps maybe patient of one of your colleagues or not a patient who you're going to be seeing long-term and they're coming in for a sore throat. Uh, At the end of the day, transgender care is primary care and that sore throat is a sore throat and you don't need to ask all those questions. And in fact, that may be uncomfortable or disarming for a patient who says, you know, look, I'm really just here for my sore throat. Um, I don't understand why you need to collect all this other information. So I I think it is really striking that balance of asking the right questions and establishing that therapeutic relationship so that patients do feel comfortable disclosing. And then also recognizing that there are um, times and scenarios um, when that, if you wouldn't ask other patients that information when they come in for a sore throat, you probably don't need to ask that patient either. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I have definitely heard that uh, a person say it was so uncomfortable. I was there for an ankle, my sprained ankle, and they went mm-hmm. into, you know, oh, I see your history of, you know, um, the individuals that you've been with sexually, and I see this, and it was like that wasn't pertinent in that moment. You know, maybe yeah. for um, an, an initial visit where they were getting to know the patient, that was part of the history. 
but they said it didn't make sense and they felt so uncomfortable and they didn't go back. You know, they didn't see that person again. And so I really hear you saying sort of the relevance of the, the questions you're asking um, and maybe saying to yourself, why am I asking this question? Mm-hmm. Is that something you say, like, should I be asking this question right now? Is this an important question? Absolutely. That's a great point. So is it is it relevant? Is it necessary? Uh, and again, if it is, is that sprained ankle or the sore throat? And that's specifically why they're coming into the office, then probably not. Yeah. And asking questions in that setting um, may just cause more discomfort and lack of trust. Yeah. So trust is really important. Being open-minded, being aware of the questions you ask and what you say. Taking a drink of water. Um, So let's move on to um, all the things that can be helpful for those individuals, for everyone who's listening, who either um, identifies as part of the LGBTQIA community, is a loved one or a friend. Um, Again, going back to the fact that there's so much um, stigma and stereotypes that many have gone through, um, have experienced trying to identify a physician. So what advice might you have for individuals really wanting to open up um, or haven't even thought of opening up? Because I guess, let's start there. What's an advantage to telling your physician about your gender identity, your history, sexual orientation, et cetera. What benefits are there for telling a physician that? Do they really, do they really need to know? I would say absolutely. Um, there are specific tests that we might order, things that we might be looking out for. I think it, it is really critical to, to your health, um, for your clinician to really know your whole, whole health story. So there's, there's, uh, there's medical value into telling your physician um, the number of partners you have, for example, to telling your physician that you um, are transgender, but maybe you actually haven't had any surgical procedures. Um, but if, if you identify as, as male or he, she, it's really helpful for them to know, like you had talked about with pap smears, um, doing some of those tests are really important. Absolutely. Um, and there might be, you know, tests that we might be more thoughtful about ordering in terms of screening for sexually transmitted illnesses, um, identifying those who might benefit from PrEP, um, which is HIV prevention medication. Uh, so, so this is all really helpful informa- and important information for us to know, making sure that, that individuals are getting age-appropriate cancer screening, that we're doing appropriate cardiovascular risk health assessments. Uh, so I, I think it is a really critical um, that patients do disclose this information so that we can provide them with the best personalized care possible to meet their needs. The other thing you had talked about in terms of um, other addictions and abuse, I'm just thinking about the social and emotional aspects of care as well. How can physicians be helpful for individuals in that manner as well? So I, I think it's you know being cognizant of, of asking those questions as well. You know, tell me about your childhood. Assess uh, for adverse childhood experience. Uh, we know that those who come out earlier in life, if uh, their parents are not supportive, are much uh, more likely to have higher rates of depression and anxiety as adults. Um, so it's really important to get a sense of that as well. And then you know, I know that I have a list of you know, behavioral health counselors uh, who do have particular expertise in, in caring for patients of the LGBTQ community. 
So um, that's also another reason why it's helpful to have that information. What do you do if a patient is under 18 and discloses to you their gender identity, orientation, what, whatever it is? What do, you, what do you do in that situation? That's a great question. Um, so in my experience, when that has happened, um, that patient has been there with a parent who's, who's known that. I haven't yet had anyone disclose to me um, without their family knowing. Oh, okay. Um, you know, certainly if they did, I, we would talk through it and I would encourage them to disclose that to their family if they felt comfortable doing so. Um, again, knowing that not being out also increases the risk of depression and anxiety from feeling as though you're constantly hiding that information. Um, you know, I do see that patients who present themselves, dress according to the gender they identify with, um, tend to feel um, more comfortable when that image that they see in the mirror is more concordant with the gender that they identify. So sort of as a reminder that the your physician and your conversations with her, him, they are a safe place. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a good reminder that if you are, if you have not come out yet, and you are looking for a safe place to be able to share that information that your physician might actually be a good individual to start having those conversations and it would it sounds like it'd be an important place to go absolutely and you know there are there's a lot of materials online there's a great brochure called do ask do tell mm -hmm. um, that gives patients some pointers for for coming out to their clinicians if the clinician isn't asking those questions routinely um, but I, I think my biggest piece of advice for patients and family members would be to really do your research so i think the more you know walking into that visit the more comfortable you're going to be um, so you know, if you have friends who are in that community, you might want to ask them, you know, who, which doctor are you seeing? You can do a search online to see if there's some information that you can find. Um, you could also call and ask the practice if any of the clinicians are LGBT knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you wouldn't have to give your name. You could just call and ask and, and maybe gauge uh, what you might expect by the way that that, that question is answered. Um, and then there are, there are a lot of other materials online, online support communities, um, which may also provide some insight. So I do find that a lot of the people who are coming in to see me are, are doing so very specifically mm -hmm. um, because they've either received my name through a friend or family member or colleague um, or have found something online. I think there's a lot of informal lists that float around, uh, which, which can be really helpful too. Yeah, you reminded me the um, AMA and American Medical Association had an LGBTQ friendly practice guide. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like you're part of that guide because one of them is to be able to identify physicians who um, are open and again, a friendly practice. They talked about having signs out, mm -hmm. brochures, posters, um, but also a statement. They talked about a non-discriminatory statement. Do you have these things at the, the practice where you work? We do. So we do have a non-discrimination policy that's displayed. Um, another thing that um, patients might consider is looking to see which organizations are part of the Health Equality Index. Um, there's a lot of steps uh, that organizations need to take in order to receive that recognition, and it really uh, signifies an investment in providing high-quality LGBT care. Okay, so let's tease that out a little bit. So you can find a practice that has LGBTQ sort of a friendly, friendly practice. They can have posters, brochures, 
look for a non-discriminatory statement, but you're saying there's a whole nother level of qualification that a practice needs to go through, and it's called the what again? Health um, And it's actually the Health Equality Index, and it's Index. actually for organizations rather than individual practices. Oh, okay. Um, so it's another point of consideration, okay. um, but it is possible that particularly for a really large organization, some practices within that organization, even if the large institution meets that criteria, um, may not be as friendly and welcoming as others. So that's why I, th I still think oh, it's okay. helpful um, to do research at the level of the individual clinicians and practices to get a, a, a better sense of, of where you might expect to have a more positive experience. So uh, it's the HEI, that was the Health Equality Index, so a practice might be, or an organization might be part of it, but you're saying do a little more digging and investigation, call the practice, ask, ask questions like, so what questions might people ask when they call? So they could say, you know, I'd like to come in and schedule a new patient visit. Which of your clinicians are LGBTQ friendly or knowledgeable? Okay. And staff know the answers to these questions? They may or may not, but okay. I think the way that, I mean, certainly if someone called my practice, um, they would say, oh, we have three clinicians who would okay. be great for you to see. Um, let's see, you know, who has the first available appointment. Um, so it may not be something that every practice would be aware of. And, and that's another thing to consider as well. There may be, you know, clinicians within a given practice who are, are more knowledgeable or provide different services. Um, you know, for example, in my practice, about half of us provide hormone therapy and PrEP, um, which is for HIV prevention, um, and the other half do not. Yeah. And then finally, what about for loved ones? So you have a loved one, let's say, that um, has transitioned um, either uh, physical, actually haven't gone through a transition, um, or just has transitioned in terms of their gender identity. Uh, and let's say that they're concerned about their health for whatever reason. So maybe they're concerned um, about their emotional health, their physical health, their social health. What um, recommendations or suggestions would you offer a loved one who may be listening, who wants to respect that they're afraid to go see the doctor, but also wants to find a way to help that individual? What are some things that someone, a loved one can do? So particularly if a patient is feeling nervous about coming into a doctor's office, and especially those who have had negative experiences before, we know that happens not infrequently, um, offering to go with them I think can be really helpful. I'm always happy when I see someone come in with a friend or a family member who's really there in their corner um, to hopefully make that experience a little bit less intimidating, particularly for the first visit. Um, there are also a lot of resources online. Um, PFLAG, Patients and Families of Lesbians and Gays, um, also has information um, for loved ones of transgender people as well. Um, that has a lot of fantastic resources. And then there can be support groups as well for, for loved ones to get some ideas from others who have been in similar situations who are really trying to figure out how they can best support that person in their life. Thank you. Um, so we're wrapping up here and um, I can't help but just pause and think about the financial part. Um, I, uh, you know, have heard and, and know of individuals who have actually gone out of the country um, to get procedures because it was covered somewhere else. Mm -hmm. um, are there any um, advice you can offer thinking about um, coverage, insurance, questions that people should ask? 
Do, do you know what I mean? So, so thinking about um, the financial strain, but also what is and isn't covered. Any tips that you can offer in regards to that? That aspect? Uh, that's a great question. That's an area that continues to evolve. So, in the past five years, I have been seeing more and more patients having no difficulty getting hormone therapy covered, okay. where we still occasionally have challenges depending on the insurance, um, though not true for all patients, um, is with gender affirming surgeries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, a lot of times it's really, um, again, doing the research learning what your specific insurance product covers. Sometimes people, if they're able, will change insurance products um, to change to something um, that that would enable those services to be provided. I've actually had a few patients who have also changed jobs. Um, there's one particular company that comes to mind that has particularly fantastic policies and coverage, um, and, and they've they've gone there very specifically for that reason. So I think there are definitely opportunities. This is an area where there's still a lot of room for improvement in terms of getting access to these services more consistently. Um, on the other hand, we are seeing a lot of positive change. So it's really a matter of, of thinking about what your own personal goals are in terms of hormone therapy, in terms of gender affirming surgery, um, and then learning about what resources might be available to you. Excellent. So any other thoughts or comments that you have for our listeners? My only other thought is really to encourage fellow clinicians um, to learn as much as they can about this, create a welcoming environment, um, and consider prescribing hormone therapy because right now, particularly for those in rural areas, access to clinicians willing to do that is very, very slim, and yet it's not more complicated than many other medications that we prescribe. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast. I'm really grateful that you were able to come and join us today. Very, very insightful, educational, and uh, enlightening information. So thank you very much, Dr. Beth. Thank you. So thank you to our listeners as well. Uh, just as a reminder, we're on Facebook. So if you would like to like our Facebook page, it's at Health Stories Podcast. Feel free to leave comments. I invite you to uh, offer suggestions. Uh, or if you're interested in being on the podcast, please let me know that as well. You have joined us today for Health Stories. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh.